This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of November 10, 2014, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 205 of Defender Radio. You've been hearing a lot about our Make Fur History campaign in the last week and a half, and sharing it with your friends, family, and neighbors. We're seeing a huge influx of support as a result and can't thank you all enough. This week, we're taking you on another look at the fur industry with a top designer, professor, and blogger, Joshua Catcher, editor and founder of the Discerning Brute blog, designer of the Brave Gentleman fashion line, and an adjunct professor of fashion at Parsons, Joshua is widely regarded as an expert on sustainable and humane fashion. In a recent conversation with Defender Radio, Joshua not only touched on his background and interest in humane fashion, but looked at the history and evolution of fur, the cultural symbolism it continues to represent, and how we might fight the fur industry by using their own tactics against them. We'll talk a bit about you. You've got a very interesting mix of interests and backgrounds, um, you know, going over your website. So why don't you, you start out, tell me a bit about uh, you. How did you get involved in fashion and uh, um, veganism and all of these other issues? Um, I got started writing about menswear and lifestyle and, uh, and fashion in 2008 when I launched The Discerning Brute. And the reason I launched The Discerning Brute was because I saw there was a real lack of coverage when it came to um, addressing men um, when it, who are, you know, when it comes to sustainability or animal rights or, um, you know, even, even more broad topics just like um, health and wellness and um, having a concern for animals and having a concern for the environment or a concern for labor, you know, with issues like sweatshops, I just find that up until that point, a lot of it was very geared towards women. It was sort of relegated to the, to the realm of the feminine. And I think a lot of mainstream men um, are a little hesitant to embrace those um, ideas because um, they're perceived as feminine. And uh, and, and guy, I think a lot of mainstream men are, are kind of scared of, you know, being perceived as feminine or weak. And um, and so I I tried you know the discerning brute was an experiment to try to address that and specifically speak to men and let them know that it's you know you can be a hero and a protector and a defender and that, you know you don't have to be scared of giving up your masculinity in order to address some of the most pressing issues that that we face. What's the the reaction been uh, to the discerning brute? The Discerning Brute, um, I was surprised how great of a reaction it got. I, I got a lot of people who are very loyal readers and followers and who really responded to it, and it, and it felt like a, you know, a fresh perspective for them, and it felt like something that they could identify with. Um, I know for me, from a writing perspective and from an editorial perspective, it was really refreshing to be able to curate a vision like that. and to provide this, uh, this I mean, it's a, it's, it's a pretty niche um, group of people, uh, but what it does is it allows guys who are just generally on the internet looking for men's, you know, men's fashion or men's lifestyle stuff or grooming products or whatever, they often stumble across the discerning brute. 
and will often be exposed to information that they wouldn't have otherwise thought out. And, you know, my, with the discerning group, my goal was never to only to only be appealing to guys who are already interested in these ideas. My my approach was to be appealing to anybody who's interested in a magazine like GQ or Esquire or, you know, any any sort of mainstream men's lifestyle um, publication. And, and then they would be able to look at the discerning brood and feel like that was part of it and that, it, and that they would want to, you know, participate in that. Well, and I think what to me is very interesting is in addition to the discerning brood, I mean, you're not just writing about this stuff, but you have your own uh, label, Brave Gentleman, and you're an adjunct professor of fashion at Parsons. Uh, a very highly regarded design school. So how does all of, how do all of these things sort of factor into your life? And I guess what I'd really like to know is how did you go from being obviously a man who was interested in all of these different ideals and all of these different concepts from fashion to sustainability to animal cruelty and develop them into your life in all of these different facets? I, I went to school for video art and environmental studies. So I was already in um, a, a good position to be both thinking creatively and also thinking um, about the environment and sustainability from a, from a critical and academic standpoint. And as I was writing The Discerning Brute, a lot of my coverage of fashion, I couldn't find the sorts of things that I thought really resonated with menswear and with what guys are seeking out. And what existed up until that point were a lot of, you know, slogan t-shirts and sort of, you know, clunky, clunky vegan shoes. And, um, there, there wasn't really the sharp, well-designed, durable, you know, classic looking stuff that I wanted to see and that I wanted to wear. So I decided to start making it. And I started off with a shoe collaboration that I do with, um, an existing shoe brand called Novaka. And they're based um, in New York City. And they're the in-house brand for Moose Shoes, which is, they have now two stores, one in New York City and one in Los Angeles. And I partnered with Novakas, and that collaboration is ongoing. I just got a bunch of new samples for next fall. I'm really excited about the shoes and boots that we're going to be um, making available for next fall. Um, but yeah, it just it was very validating to be able to take my design concepts and work with uh, a company that had great experience with a fair labor factory and with really amazing materials that were durable. And um, there's this stigma with sustainable fashion and vegan fashion that it's cheap or less than or that it's going to fall apart. And I really set out to just prove that and to not only prove that vegan fashion can be just as well-designed and just as durable, but it could be even better and superior in many instances. With the materials we use for our shoes, for example, they outperform traditional animal-based leather on many levels, whether it's from a sustainability standpoint or a weather a weather resistance standpoint and a longevity standpoint. A lot, a lot of people don't realize that, um, that leather today, animal-based leather, is one of the one of the biggest environmental offenders, and you know it gets destroyed in the winter by street by the salt in the streets. It it's not you know rainproof. It, it's it's skin. It's meant to biodegrade. So 
um, it's a really, a really interesting, <laughs> really interesting thing to think about when you think about what leather really is. That was a tangent. Sorry about that. <laughs> no problem at all. Uh, and that's something that we've come across in our research about fur. There's a study, uh, I'm sure you're aware of by CE Delft in Europe that looked at, um, textile production and it showed that fur, uh, or animal products, I think in general, was the worst environmentally, even con uh, compared to, to oil-based things, uh, because of all of the chemicals used in the treatment process. And that's something that uh, yeah, and it's not even yeah, it's not even just the chemicals. I mean that that report needs to be it needs to be publicized more because it, what it really showed was one of the biggest criticisms from the fur industry and from people who support fur when they hear of you know alternatives to fur or faux fur or even synthetics as an alternative to staying warm in the winter. They say, oh, those are you know those are petrol products. They're they're made from petroleum, they're made from, from oil, and therefore it's worse for the environment. But they don't consider all of these other factors that go into the breeding and raising and feeding and processing and slaughtering and all these things of the animals that are used for fur. And, and the amount of oil that's used to, to do all of those things far outweighs the amount of oil that would go into directly into a synthetic. And, a lot of, and the other thing that they ignore is innovation. And when we look at what's happening with innovation in textiles now, all of the most exciting and high-tech sustainable innovations are happening in the realm of either plant-based organics or high-tech synthetics. And synthetics are evolving. We're not going to always be stuck using this, you know, oil-based acrylic or vinyl that everybody thinks we're still using from like 1985. We have synthetics that are made from recycled materials, in Japan, they're making lycra from waste molasses. They're making, there's somebody in, uh, in Europe who's growing uh, cellulose-based leather and kombucha culture. There's companies like Modern Meadow that have figured out how to grow cells in the lab, very much like lab-grown meat, but it's lab-grown leather. So there's no animal attached and you still get, you know, that sort of material. But they just, the, the fur industry avoids and ignores acknowledging that synthetics and plant-based organics are always getting better and more refined and more efficient and more sustainable. And on the other hand, the fur industry is never going to change. You can only, you can only confine and kill animals in so many ways. So they're stuck in the way that they are. And, and, well, you know, superior materials are always getting better and always changing. I, I would then ask, uh, and this maybe comes back to your role as a, as a uh, adjunct professor, is how do we explore that more with up-and-coming designers? Because the fur industry does go out and offer money and offer free products uh, to some fashion designers and schools saying, hey, see what you can do with this. And it's, you know, it's, it's good business for the fur industry, but it's bad for the animals and those of us who care about it. So what would you think is maybe an ideal fix to that, uh, that kind of an issue at the educational level? I mean, it seems, it seems kind of, um, callous or, or even, you know, a little, a little common sense to say this, but it, it just comes down to money when you're a struggling student or a struggling young designer to have a well-funded industry approach you and give you money and give you product and give you opportunity, it's very hard to say no to that, especially when it's like, okay, 
I'm either going to be able to have my own line and do these, you know, and use these materials, or I'm going to say no and miss out on this opportunity and go work, you know, go work for this other big label doing menial work. Um, a lot of students, even though they might have hesitations about using fur, will still say yes to it because of the opportunity it provides. And that is where we need to look at, look at what the fur industry is doing and say, okay, this is all they're doing. They're offering financial incentives. They're offering access to these materials. Why can't we do the same thing? Why can't we say, hey, we're going to offer, you know, a scholarship or a fellowship or a, you know, start a fund for for design students and give them money to to use these high tech visionary textiles and and to not use animal based materials. And I think that a lot of our traditional approach to fighting the fur industry is in that word fighting. That we we imagine that we have to go out, take to the streets, and stand with our our placards and our banners and yell and, you know, accost people <laughs> on the street who are wearing fur and that somehow that's going to, you know, end the fur industry. And I mean, while I think that has, that has a valid place and a valid, um, there's a valid reason to do that, I think shame and guilt can play an important role in shaping, you know, how people react to certain things. I don't think that can be our only tactic. And I think it, it, providing incentive is probably one of the most powerful things because it creates desire and it creates aspiration. And it can't just be looked at as an avoidance. We're not just avoiding fur. We're using superior materials. We're offering superior access to, um, to materials and to opportunities. And, um, and I think that's the next, that's sort of the evolution that the, that the, anti-fur movement has to go into is not just being on the on the defensive but also being on the offensive in that in that case where we are going out contacting fashion schools offering money to students offering access to materials and and starting to really provide uh, a library of these materials who's making them where can we get them how do we access them um it, it's it's a little more complicated <laughs> but i think it would be very effective We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. I am Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Do you have raccoons or squirrels living in your attic? Did you know that the hole in your roof is letting water in? Your insulation is being ruined and they could be chewing on your electrical wiring? Protect your biggest investment. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit our website at gateswildlifecontrol.com or dial 416-750-9453. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing Keystone species. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride, Find out more at arrivealive.org. 
The Christmas tree for the animals has long been a beacon of hope in times of darkness. By sending in your donation today, your very own light will be lit as a reminder of all the lives that were lost this year. And it will serve as a beacon of hope as we fight to protect fur-bearing animals for another year. Please donate today at www.furbearerdefenders.com. That's www.furbearerdefenders.com. This is Defender Radio. We're back with more from our in-depth interview with blogger, fashion designer, and professor Joshua Catcher. One of the things I wanted to to bring up too is the the concept of cyclical fashion, the concept of fur in history, and things things like that. Um, which again, I I understand from the historical point of view. Um, but I, I, and anyone who knows me will, will snort and then agree. I am not a fashion kind of guy. I'm the sniff it. And if it doesn't smell that bad, put it on kind of guy. Um, so, you know, I, I think an interesting concept to talk about is the material itself, fur, because we're often being told humans have always worn fur and, you know, we need fur to stay alive and this and that. But I think people miss out, and you've already touched on this a bit, the evolution of technology, the evolution of material. Uh, so what's different, would you say, from that traditional, you know, you need fur to stay warm, looking back even 100 years, 50 years ago to now, is there a difference in what the fur product is or how it's used? Well, fur hasn't changed. You know, fur is always going to be the preserved skin and, you know, pelt with the skin with, you know, the term pelt just means skin with the hair follicle still in it. And um, so with the hair still growing out of it. So, you know, these pelts, they haven't changed over history. What has changed is the toxic chemicals that are now used to preserve it. What used to be used, you know, if we're talking about indigenous cultures or, you know, in a prehistoric context, and even in, you know, a pre-Renaissance context, um, it was usually urine, feces, um, brain, uh, anything with a lot of tannin in it would be used. So that, the, the, the uh, preserving of leather and preserving of pelts was a disgusting, very smelly, very gross thing back then. And it's still now a very dirty, disgusting thing. So, um, <laughs> I mean, when you think about what it is, you're taking something that nature designed to decompose and you're preventing it from doing everything it was designed to do. You're, you're, pre- you're preventing it from growing because it's dead and you're preventing it from decomposing because it's dead. So it's in this weird in-between stage where it's not alive and it's not dead and it's not decomposing. It's just, you know, preserved. And what it, what it takes to fight those, to fight, <laughs> to fight evolution, essentially to fight what nature wants to do. Nature wants to decompose that thing. You have to refrigerate for it. You have to treat it with chemicals. You have to, you know, all of these things go into the care of fur and it smells bad when it's rained on and it releases, you know, it's just, it's gross. And it's, it's a stale, it's a stale, stiff material to work with from a design perspective. But what we are seeing differently is the application of fur in design. And a lot of designers are starting to use it more as an accent or an accessory, or they're dyeing it bright colors or making it more appealing to young people, making it seem like it's something fun and, carefree and 
Uh, and something I'll touch on probably later is this idea of fur being naughty. And that is so appealing. That is one of the most appealing things about it is the fact that it's controversial. And that is something that backfires for a lot of anti-fur activists is playing it, playing right into the hands of these people who buy it because they want to feel like they're indulging in something naughty. And, um, but getting back to talking about fur from a historical context, in addition to how it's changed um, for, for, as a material, it's also changed culturally and politically and, and what it represents. Because King uh, Edward III made all these laws called sumptuary laws. And these, uh, these were laws that lasted for hundreds of years, from the 1300s through up into, I think, you know, somewhere in the middle of the 1700s. So you have generation after generation of people, in, in, at least in England and in, and in much of Europe, believing that these, these laws stated that only certain people can wear very specific types of fur. So royalty, nobility, people of power, people who are landowners, people who are um, the most powerful wealthy people in society are the people who are wearing the majority of fur. And this idea that only the most powerful people wear fur has permeated over those hundreds of years, and we still can see the ramifications of that today, that people seek out wearing fur because it's a symbol of luxury, a symbol of wealth, a symbol of power. And in a more modern context, it's now a symbol of sexuality. But um, I would say that a lot of those things still play a big role in how, why people seek it out, why people want to wear it. Um, it's uh, it, it's just this very balanced combination of being powerful, being sensual, being naughty, being all of these things that we that a lot of human beings sort of subconsciously want to seek out. And you know, it's funny. It's the 21st century, and the attitudes of people from 800 years ago still exist. And it's kind of hard to wrap your brain around <laughs> that, isn't it? Um, now, it is. There are there are a few there's a few themes that I think are timeless with human beings that resonate with us, and those are power, sex, death, um, the supernatural. Those are things that have continued to uh, endure in fascinating us from you know the beginning of our species through today, and um, and I think that 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 for has situated itself right in there with all those things. Okay, and one of the other things I wanted to ask you about, and you may find this interesting. So my my folks are from Manitoba. My mom grew up in Brandon, which is north of the pro uh, the northern end of the province, and she would talk about wearing fur uh, as a child because it, it was really friggin' cold. Um, and at the time, you know, in the the forties, fifties, and sixties, fur was what kept you warm. Now she goes out, um, and granted, she lives in southern Ontario, but she goes out to Alberta every year, and she buys thin materials that warm her just as much as fur. But there is still this attitude that fur is the warmest um, material available. And the reality is we see, you know, special forces training in Arctic conditions without fur. We see explorers, and if they have fur, it's a bit of trim on the hood. Uh, meant for wicking away moisture. It's not lining the coat. It's not doing all of these things it once did. So how did the evolution of the technology occur? And 
how do we again combat that whole concept that fur is the warmest product out there it's a very uh, <laughs> it's an aesthetic response that we have to fur that because fur is tactile because it's soft because it's pretty it feels nice and it's warm um it's not something that people want to admit is inferior to anything because it's such a it's such a um pleasing product from a tactile and aesthetic standpoint. Um, however, we can thank, you know, NASA because what is the coldest, what is the coldest environment that any human being has ever been in out, you know, outer space. It, it is colder in outer space than anywhere else. Do astronauts wear fur? No. Do astronauts have fur lined spacesuits? No. So when you're talking about function and you're talking about truth about what, what keeps, people the warmest you can what, exactly what you were saying look at what the military is using look at what arctic explorers are using look what nasa is using they're not using fur yeah yes fur has warming properties but it is not better than human innovation it is not superior to keeping people warm from an innovation innovation standpoint so we can keep people much warmer than fur can uh, and keep that moisture wicked away and do do all those things with, um, you know, with sustainable and high-tech synthetics. Um, the problem is those synthetics don't have the same, don't have the same cultural appeal that fur does. They don't carry with them that symbol, that powerful visual symbol that people get when they wear fur. So if you're wearing, you know, a high-tech <laughs> synthetic parka, and you're just as warm as the person next to you in a big, you know, lynx coat. The only reason, the only difference is now we're talking about um, semiotics. We're talking about the power of the symbol, and the the power of the symbol of the fur is going to be is going to outweigh the power of the symbol of that synthetic because what we've been trained to think culturally is we're going to look at that person in the lynx and say, oh, that person's rich. That person uh, has access to power. That person, you know, is sexy. And um, and those connotations are not associated with something that is specifically technical. And following up on that thought, and I think this is something you are so uniquely situated to answer. A lot of what we do as animal advocates, as the association, uh, uh, as animal lovers is trying to appeal to people's emotional state and say, look at the truth behind the fur trim that's one of our our big sayings and it's see where it's coming from see what's happening to get you this there are people who uh, like myself had more of um, an analytical introduction to this whole concept um, of fur and the environments and veganism and all of that um, but when we look at men wearing fur there is that uh, that that symbol uh, of manliness, of power, of strength, of the old west, of explorers wearing fur, and with all of our time we spend talking about this and trying to get people to look past it, I feel like a lot of it's directed at uh, uh, women or or feminism, um, in that we're we're appealing to that emotional state. We have the science, but we're appealing emotionally. How could we be directing this more particularly at men? How can we get past that, that culturally uh, uh, insisted upon toughness to say there is more to this? 
I mean, there is definitely a trend of men, more men wearing fur now than before. But if you look at the numbers economically, uh, women buying fur or fur being purchased for women, I should say, because a lot of men buy fur for women um, as this very traditional, you know, patriarchal symbol of, you know, you are my woman. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I mean, there's this tradition of men giving buying for for women it's it's a very similar you know idea to an engagement ring you know it's a it's a weird sort of form of ownership it's a weird form of like i can protect you see do you see what i can provide is is the ultimate symbol of the man buying the fur for the woman and that traces back to you know hunter gatherer times where um the hunter would go out and, you know, bring back the pelt and protect, you know, and, and literally, you know, it would be about survival in that context. But in this context, it's lost its, um, its literal meaning. And now it's more symbolic, but it still is about access to power. It's still about, look, I can afford this coat for you. And this is a symbol of how I'm going to take care of you for the rest of your life. And it's a very traditional, you know, heteronormative, male, you know, male sort of owning the female kind of thing. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't plenty of empowered women who seek out fur for its symbol of power in itself and buy it for themselves. I'm not saying that that doesn't exist, but I'm saying a lot of fur that's purchased um, is still purchased for for this very traditional um, symbol of, you know, of of what I was explaining before. But um, to your question about the uh, the men wearing fur. There are more men wearing fur now, and I think it's because um, the the industry has realized that there is that appeal of the you know when you look at when you look at go to any art museum and you look at the portraits that are painted, the oil paintings. Um, fashion is informed by art, and a lot of fashion aspires to be seen as art. And when we look at all of the, the most famous portraits, the most famous, you know, oil paintings, and uh, many of the subjects are wearing fur. And it is presented as this regal, um, you know, a- accomplishment to, to, be, to be wearing it. All the explorers, all of the, you know, the warriors, all of these people um, are, you know, even if it's simply, a, you know, like a leopard uh, pelt, like tied around the torso in a very, you know, sort of primitive way. Um, this idea of using fur as as the symbol to to, to communicate um, access to the wilderness, access to adventure, access to um, to the wild, essentially to being to be by wearing the animal, you take on the animal's characteristics. That that has a lot to do with the appeal to men, for men. Um, and the, the the ruggedness, like you were saying, with the you know this idea of the, the old west. Um, and that, you know, how do we address that is it's, it's the same way we have to, we have to address all of it. We have to confront the illusion, deconstruct it, provide the truth in a way that is appealing and desirable and aspirational and, um, and simply take the oomph out of that symbol. And that's hard to do when you have a long standing symbol. It's hard to, to take the, the meaning out of something that is so ingrained, um, but I wouldn't approach it too much differently than I would approach taking it apart for any, you know, for whether it's women or men. But, but I think understanding, I think understanding why men would seek out for versus why women would seek out for, um, 
is important. And I also want to say, obviously, you know, the idea of what men do and what women do is a, is a binary that's very limiting. There's obviously a, a complete spectrum of people in between all of those behaviors that, that, you know, there's a lot of men who, um, who buy fur to, because they're drag queens and they're doing a caricature of a woman or there, there's, you know, women who, uh, who, who dress in more menswear, more androgynous. They're, there, there's a whole spectrum, but the mainstream, the, the majority are doing the very traditional male and female, um, you know, uh, patterns of purchasing and desires. To learn more about Joshua Catcher and his work, visit thediscerningbrute.com or look up The Discerning Brute on Facebook. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today and for helping promote our efforts to make fur history. As always, I'd like to thank Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support of this program. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.